Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Max from Arc Invest. Welcome to the For Your Innovation podcast. Today, we're going to talk about a topic that is top of mind for everybody, which is the coronavirus. And we're going to talk about the impact of the coronavirus on a topic that George is going to host um, the podcast with me today look at all the time, which is uh, fintech. And this is a topic that has been discussed in the media really heavily in recent days and weeks. It's, it's maybe a little bit different from what we normally hear in the context of the coronavirus in the media, which is more towards uh, medical inquiries and so forth. So today we want to talk about the coronavirus in the context of fintech and payments. And to do so, I have with me on the podcast, George, who is part of the fintech team at ARK Invest. And I think George has not been on a podcast yet. So George, please introduce yourself. Thanks, Max. It's great to be here. Uh, yeah, as Max was saying, I've been at ARK for about a little over six months now. Prior to my time at ARK, I spent uh, about five years at Square. And then yeah, my time at Square, the majority of my time was spent on, on the capital team, the small business lending arm. So uh, excited to be working with Max. It's been a great six months. And, and you know, as, as all your listeners know, it's uh, very interesting times out there. So, you know, really excited to, you know, dig in and, and see how fintech is making a difference with, with response to the coronavirus or is changing, I should say. So with that, Max, do you want to talk about how, what you've been looking at in terms of the coronavirus and fintech? Yeah, for sure. And we, we've got a lot to talk about here. So what I would like to do is start kind of with, um, with a little bit of a top-down view and start with actually the comments of the WHO. The WHO already around two weeks ago put out statements that uh, kind of urged consumers to use contactless payments instead of uh, cash payments. So they said that money changes hands frequently and it can pick up all sorts of bacteria and viruses and that they would advise people to wash their hands after handling banknotes. And when it's possible, it's a good idea to use contactless payments. What's interesting is that they actually walked back these comments a little bit after they were originally published in a in the UK newspaper, which kind of find, found interesting. And it perhaps even makes sense that they would, would not you know, give out this very definitive warning against cash use to perhaps prevent a situation where people are maybe want to hoard large amounts of cash before it kind of gets out there and infected. So this this theory might be a little bit out there, but I found it interesting that they kind of kind of walk back on that a little bit. Either way, the countries all around countries all around the globe uh, took it seriously. So immediately after this warning from the WHO, 
South Korea implemented the quarantine policy on its physical notes. The United States, with the U.S. Federal Reserve, also started setting aside dollar bills uh, that came from Asia and put them in quarantine uh, before recirculating them. And uh, really all around the world, we've seen governments kind of advising to reduce the use of cash notes and increase the use of uh, contactless and, and digital payment types. So for example, in Africa, where actually mobile payments and mobile money is already pretty prevailing, we had a bunch of governments, including Ghana, Kenya, and some others as well, to actually waive the fees for money transfers and increase transaction sizes or transaction limits. We also have it from the Emirates, where the central bank encouraged banking customers to take advantage of digital and online banking services. We also saw it in India, where the government also urged users to use cashless payment methods. And actually, even the, the canteen of the Indian parliament went cashless. So in Australia, we had the same in Israel. Now all public transport is, is cashless. And there also was an article in the Financial Times that talked about how in London, more and more small businesses are putting signs on their windows and saying that, that say that they refuse to take cash. Do you think that this is going to hold, hold over, uh, that this, this push to contactless payments is going to hold over you know, past the coronavirus? Is this, is this sort of like what we've been waiting for in terms of you know, the, an actual need for contactless payments, if that makes sense? Yeah, that's that's a big question. So, and it's interesting because it ties into another podcast that we've done here at ARC last year, um, around a year ago, with two professors from the Kellogg School of Management, with with Nicolas Cruzet and Filippo Mezzanotti. They put out a paper that basically analyzed the effects of the currency denomination or demonetization in India in 2016, which basically took away all cash notes. And what they found is that as a response to that, they actually saw a, a huge uptick in digital payments and especially in these digital wallets, how we call them. So basically applications that enable mobile payments and all other kind of consumer financial services. So there was this kind of positive demand shock for cashless payments that um, you know, drove up um, the usage of these digital wallets and, and digital payments in India. And the interesting thing was that back then they found that, you know, you, you did not only have this initial effect, kind of, kind of short-term effect, but you actually had a, had a medium and long-term migration away from cash towards these digital platforms. So, George, I think the question is exactly right. You know, will this kind of lead to, to medium to long-term adoption? I think, honestly, it's, it's too early to say. I think... You can make the argument, though, and, and we've heard that from some companies. For example, Alibaba also said that they saw their grocery and food delivery e-commerce volume increase tremendously during February and, and January and so forth when coronavirus epidemic hit China, and that they expect that this will you know, basically serve as, as a period where consumers were getting used to this new form of, of e-commerce in that case or, or of kind of uh, transaction habit, in that case, um, grocery e-commerce, and that kind of spilling over into long-term adoption. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a healthy development. I, I would be curious to hear your thoughts, but yeah, I, I guess we'll, we'll be able to tell later this year or, or in the future. 
Yeah, I think what a couple of things that you said that, that actually struck, you know, struck me. One is just, you know, we're thinking about the mobile payment applications, you know, seeing an increase in adoption. And I certainly think that's true. We're based here in the U.S. And I think one of the more interesting things that we've seen is it took, you know, a number of years for the U.S. to move from a magnetic stripe credit card reader to uh, just even uh, to, to enable chip card. And that was sort of that. That was a requirement, so that happened. But it, it it took the industry a lot longer. And if we sort of like take that same thinking and overlay it onto just even contactless cards, internationally, contactless payments are very prevalent. However, in the U.S., they're not. So, you know, as I think about this, it could even be just like this is the forcing function where it gets people to think, hey, you know, contactless payments are actually not just a nice to have, they're now a requirement for me because it reduces the vectors of transmission for any sort of virus, you know, whether that's just the normal flu or, or, or even the coronavirus. So I think that's a little interesting is, is that, you know, we've had this contactless payment ability, both, both through mobile wallets and also, you know, some credit cards, but it's traditionally just been a nice to have. So in regards to that, uh, that is really interesting, uh, thinking about how this could be, you know, a forcing function for people to, to, to adopt not necessarily new technology, but like a new form of, uh, of payment. Yeah. And I think an additional point is that, you know, n- new people will be introduced to these services and they might find out that, let's say, you know, a cash app, which is one of the top digital wallets in the U.S., offers not only you know, this, you know, very safe peer-to-peer functionality, but, you know, has a whole, has a lot of other functionalities as well that actually also come in handy in this situation. And, um, you know, we, we can kind of go into how Square is handling the situation, which I think is very interesting. And it, yeah, you know, especially is interesting with your background as well. Yeah, so Square is basically operating in two ecosystems. On the one hand, they have their merchants, you know, that, that use the point of sale device to to accept payments and then also use different software services around that and then on the other side they are serving consumers with the cash app and square on both sides this week has taken measurements to kind of help both businesses and consumers to deal with this crisis so in terms of the the merchant side they have waived software subscription fees for for the merchants for the month of march so that includes all all of their software services square appointments um, square restaurants and so forth. And they also released a curbside pickup feature for merchants. And they also plan to release a, a local delivery feature later this week. And just on that, it's it's really fascinating that they've been able to, you know, put out this product in in a matter of a couple of days, this this curbside pickup feature and merchants already can go on YouTube. There's an instruction video. It's it's basically working uh, you know really easily. And you know, from a higher level, and, and I would love to get your thoughts on that as well, George, is, is I think it's just, you know, very great to, you know, very interesting that, you know, basically Square and, and other companies that have been kind of newcomers in this, in this industries and have been building products from scratch and have been the innovators, they, they're used to operating in an environment of uncertainty. In a, in a very challenging environment. And, you know, part of our thesis at ARC is that actually these companies, these innovative companies who are used to this uncertainty and who don't have this kind of industry controlling legacy situation where they're in, 
they are likely to master this challenge with the coronavirus or, or rather any challenge, you know, but much better because they're more agile. And, and I think that also, you know, impacts the consumer side on the cash app where the cash app is, is, has been doing giveaways this week on Twitter where they urged users to, to put in their cash tag on Twitter, which is kind of the cash app username. And then they've, they've given away literally thousands of dollars this Friday, just today, as we're recording the podcast on our Friday, March 20th, they gave away $100,000 um, on, on Cash App Friday, which, is a, which was the largest Cash App Friday ever. And they also are helping consumers with the Boost program. Boost is basically um, kind of an instant discount that gets applied to your cash card. That's a Cash App debit card purchase. And they, they normally have, you know, boosts ranging um, across all different kind of retail sectors. And this week they have boosts that are specifically focused on, on groceries. So they have 10% off any grocery store, 10% of Walgreens, 10% of Walmart, basically to help all these consumers. And that's another very interesting point I think that you can make is that it, it, it really pays off if you have the consumer at a digital touch point, if you can directly influence him and directly talk to him, and you have incentive structures that you know allow you to to give a response and, um, like I said, to 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 influence and inform your your customer. So, just as an example, you know, Square is able to give out thousands of dollars directly to their Cash App users just with the help of this cash tag with the Cash App username. Meanwhile, the U.S. government has been talking now for days about the $1,000 stimulus check they want to send out to, to every adult in the U.S. And if you look at kind of the, the history of, of such programs, so they did the same, a similar thing actually in 08 or 09. It took months until they actually sent out the checks or the electronic payments to the consumers. So on, on the one hand, kind of being used to all to to uncertainty and being used to operating, you know, in challenging environments could be very useful in, in this kind of situation. And then on the other hand, also having a direct um, touch point to the consumer via Twitter, or I think George, you just also flagged what they're doing on Twitch, which is also, you know, very interesting and what what we don't see from any other payments company. Yeah, I think it's what's super interesting to me is is, is Square is one of the few companies where there's a clear alignment in incentives. So, you know, just to contextualize things, right? Like the S&P 500 has fallen roughly 30% over the last month. And so what that means is a lot of small businesses now as a result of coronavirus have to shut down. And that impacts Square because Square is predominantly a small business payment processor, right? So Square earns, earns you know, some revenue off of each credit card transaction and software fees, as you said. So what I think is interesting is, is uh, companies like Square that either reduce their fees or try and you know, help further incentivize or further align incentives rather between themselves and their customers. Because what I noticed at my time at Square was always just, you know, there was a clear directive from the top, which was Jack saying, when our customers win, we win. Right, so if they're if if small businesses are going out of business, Square is disproportionately going to be hurt. That being said, if Square can make it easier for you know its small businesses to overcome the the challenges in in the days and weeks weeks ahead, they can potentially you know get 
create more loyalty between themselves and their customers, but then also simply just keep businesses in business longer. And that's something that, that, you know, that we really need right now, given the economic hardships a lot of these businesses and consumers are facing. And I think that also goes directly right over to, to the consumer side. It just, you know, Cash App is one of the few brands that we've seen really connect with users um, and and it's, in a way, they're sort of reinventing. Like if you just look at the logo, right? It's a dollar sign. But more broadly speaking, they're almost just reinventing what the dollar sign actually means. It's now synonymous with Cash App for you know a large portion of the population. I think Max, the, correct me if I'm wrong, but they had just under 25 million monthly active users at the end of December. And as you mentioned, yeah, I mean they're they're able to distribute aid to consumers, not in huge stimulus packages, but they're doing something and they're able to do it very quickly. So again, just going back to that, you know, the stat of the S&P, like what's different about about this crisis first relative to the financial crisis is the speed in which the market has fallen. So it's it's really caught people on, on on their back foot. And, you know, the response, in my opinion, needs to be just as quick, if not quicker of a response to, you know, such a quick shock to the system so to speak. So I've been floored with how responsive, you know, the Cash App team is and Square more broadly of just like how quickly they're responding to these, you know, rapidly changing events. And, and again, I think that goes right back to your point of, of them being, you know, incredibly agile in these, in these times, but that's, that's part of their DNA because they're accustomed to living in, in uncertain times. And then just on the, on the Twitch you know, stats that, 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 that you referenced, you know, they're, they're hosting a, a tournament, a charity tournament today on, on Twitch, and they're giving away an additional $50,000. That's absolutely incredible. All you have to do is just put your cash tag in, you know, in the side chat bar of, of Twitch. So not only is it, is it great to see them, you know, helping consumers out in their times of need, but it's also just frankly, like a really creative way of reaching their consumers. And, you know, last I looked, they had, roughly 440,000 unique views. So it's it's hard to find another consumer financial brand that reaches that many people in such a short period of time. Yeah, and I think we have to make a I think we have to record a separate episode about Cash App and Cash App's uh, marketing which I think is really genius and and you know you can we we can talk a lot about that talking about Square and and just generally companies that are, are adaptive in this situation. What what other companies come to mind kind of from your end? Is there anything on the radar? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, earlier this week, Zillow, which is traditionally has been a, a residential advertising platform, um, but has recently started to, you know, expand into buying and selling homes themselves, but also continuing to work with real estate agents. They actually and and they're they have a premier agent program where you know, it's just just a higher touch program with some of their best agents. They actually cut, uh, and they earn a commission from that program. They cut the commission that they're taking from their premier agent program by fifty percent. And they guided in in their announcement in doing so. They guided saying that this was probably going to be a forty to fifty million dollar decline in in revenue between. I think they're starting at March March twenty third, and they're going to April twentieth. So again, just just an example of another company that's trying to be agile and trying to do the right thing in, in, in times of need to send out on, you know, and it goes back to that, that saying, you know, if, if your customers win, then so do you, right? So if Zillow's agents stay on the platform longer and they can survive during this, this economic, this times of, you know, economic hardship, they're going to come out ahead 
uh, after after the the you know we we solved the issue of the coronavirus. You know, additionally, I think there there are a couple more companies that I'm looking at just just to rattle off another quick one. Uh, DocuSign is a, is another interesting one that that we particularly like just because it enable it's it's an enabler for this working remote culture that we've all been forced into. So you know, just again going back to the theme of forcing functions. Just a couple of days ago, we we our CEO had to sign sign something, and he's like, I don't have a I don't have a scanner or a printer in my house. Well, fortunately, our organization is on DocuSign, and you know, we're able to actually make that make that happen. So business is able to continue you know, regardless of, of the technology that certain people have, have in their homes. So, you know, we've been pleasantly surprised on that front. A couple other, you know, companies that come to name, Intercontinental Exchange has a subsidiary backed, which is actually a venture backed company, but they, they're a majority owner in it. And they are enabling consumers to spend loyalty points. And this is actually through a recent acquisition that they made. But basically, they're allowing people to spend loyalty points starting at Starbucks, which is really interesting. So if you think about, you know, I've got, for example, say I have 100,000 American Airlines points in my loyalty program with American Airlines. Well, there's a pretty high likelihood that I'm not going to be using those loyalty points in the next couple of months. So that's just effectively lost value to me as a consumer. Similarly, if you look at the airlines, you know, they're in the headlines today because they're having massive balance sheet issues. So sometimes these loyalty programs will actually be booked as liabilities. And there's billions and billions of dollars booked on these airlines balance sheets. So if there's a way to, you know, align incentives between Starbucks, who pays high card processing fees, the airlines and the consumer, then likely that is a that that will be a net a net beneficiary in these times of need, uh, where you know people, businesses are pushed to consider things that they might not otherwise do. So again, you know, these like forcing function is sort of the theme. And so, from the three parties that I just named, from the consumer's perspective, they're able to get liquidity on the rewards program. From the airlines, they're able to reduce their uh, balance sheet liability. And then from you know Starbucks and other potential merchants down the line they're able to potentially get lower card processing fees. So just really interesting things that are, that are, you know, have been in the works, but, but now are sort of brought, you know, first and like upfront and center as real opportunities that need to be executed on. Yeah. I think the back point is super interesting, especially in the light of, you know, companies and, and balance sheet problems and, and so on, you know, you probably can phrase it as more kind of a preventive kind of, technology that could help you in this kind of situation but yeah it's it's going to be really interesting to see kind of what back does especially because you know this is not really intercontinental exchanges kind of core dna right so it's really going to be fascinating to see what they're well, going to do with this if they yeah, manage not- to pull off this this kind of interoperability of, of reward programs i think that could be right. really big right yeah, no, I, I I share the same concerns with you. I, I I think from my perspective, you know, if you take a if you take a high level view of intercontinental exchange, they are a marketplace. And so this, you know, from a high level perspective, while it doesn't necessarily make as much sense on on you know first blush, that what they're trying to do or what they're aiming to do is create yet another marketplace, and that is in their core DNA. So you know, definitely remains to be seen yep. whether or not consumers will adopt this, businesses will adopt this, but it is like something that that does make a little sense when when you uh, give it that context. But again, yeah, it's it's really early. But again, you know, 
desperate times call for desperate measures. One other company that I wanted to bring up just in the context of, you know, there's a lot of potential aid packages being proposed. The first one that comes to mind to me was President Trump's uh, speech last Wednesday night, where he said he wanted to, uh, he wanted Congress to approve a $50 billion aid package through the Small Business Administration. So just some context, some numbers for context on, on that. Um, and we actually wrote about this in our newsletter last week. You can go to arc-invest.com to check that out. But the Small Business Administration in, in 2018 gave out, and I should be clear that Small Business Administration doesn't actually make the loans themselves. They guarantee you know, a significant portion, up to 85%, I believe, of those loans through their partners. And a lot more often than not, you know, the partners are, are, are banks. So in, in 2019, the Small Business Administration guaranteed 58,000 loans, or a portion of those 58,000 loans, I should say, and that totaled $28 billion. So again, for context, it takes about two to three weeks for these loans to actually get funded. And as we were talking about earlier, the speed at which this crisis has come on is unprecedented. So as I look at it from a, a fintech perspective, you know, I, I, I keep thinking, you know, we need more speed to distribute this aid. And so, you know, the newsletter that we wrote about last week, you know, we talked a little bit about what are the alternatives to, you know, some of these partners that are seen as more traditional lenders. So we have, you know, the likes of, and, and I should say, you know, there are some, some fintechs that, that do work with the Small business, business Administration, Cabbage being one of them. Square, for instance, lent out, originated 330,000 loans in 2019, totaling 2.3 billion. So significantly less. But if you just look at the average average loan size, it's about seven thousand dollars. Whereas whereas the Small Business Administration average is, is a little over four hundred thousand dollars. So what what where I get concerned with some of these aid packages is just that it's not distributed evenly, right? So you have you know a, a business that's doing you know ten million dollars in revenue, getting that four hundred plus thousand dollar loan, whereas you know the coffee shop on Main Street of you know any town in the U.S is it might, might not have as much time or resources to help make that happen. So we're cautiously optimistic that something will come of this and that you know, fintech lenders might start working more hand in hand with the SBA to help get out you know, aid packages. And I, just before we started this podcast, I was actually looking at some stats and you know, there's, a, there's a Republican bill that's being proposed in the Senate. I think it was proposed on the 18th. And then that, you know, we went from $50 billion last Wednesday to $300 billion in loans to small businesses, or potential, potential loans to small businesses in less than a week. So it just shows you the magnitude and the gravity of this situation that we're, that we're in now. Yeah. And I think the fintechs getting involved in this really is in, in the interest of everybody here, because the, if you think about the distribution network and kind of the technology that, that fintech lenders have, like, like George said, you know, that could really speed up the process. And for a lot of small businesses, you know, this is, this is a matter of days and not of weeks or, or months. So I think that that's something very important. Yes. Yeah. And it should be clear, like we're all for the Small Business Administration yeah. making those loans. We don't want to critique it. We just think that the, there are, you know, ways in which they can help us like quicken the pace of distribution of, of that aid. So keep doing what you're doing, Small Business Administration, but definitely try and see if we can work with some, some of the fintech players out there. One other thing. I was kind of struck at that you talked about was this, you know, work uh, kind of remote work situation with DocuSign and 
how firms are managing this situation right now. And one interesting statistic I came by kind of in the financial context here is that there's a company called Symphony, which provides instant messaging for banks. Um, it's mostly used by, by, by banks and other financial institutions. And they said that their messaging activity surged up to 500% in recent days. And especially messages with, with attachments such as PDFs and, and Word files and so forth. And what we also heard is that some financial uh, institutions are also a little bit struggling with this, with this situation. So it just shows how vulnerable kind of everybody is. And I think we at ARC, you know, can be kind of uh, grateful to, to our team that, you know, we're handling this well. But, you know, for a lot of firms, this, this really is a shock. And if you think about banks, you can also think about their branch network and, you know, a lockdown or a quarantine um, situation and, and how that would be negatively affected. Actually, Chase just announced, I think it was yesterday, that they are going to close uh, 20%, so roughly, roughly 1,000 of their 5,000 branches. And, you know, just doing, doing some pocket math, a, a bank branch costs you know, an average of $700,000 to run per year. That's around $60,000 per month. So if, if Chase closes these thousand branches for four weeks, that's already $60 million in costs, um, maybe a little bit less because they might even, you know, let some people go potentially. And if Chase were to close all of their branch, uh, branches for one month, that would amount to costs of more than a quarter of a billion dollars. So these are all costs that, you know, some square or, you know, also cabbage of these of the world, you know, they don't have to deal with these kind of costs. So, um, yeah, I think you know, I think part of, yeah. you know, this this crisis that we're in is and, and you know, sort of to state the obvious is, is simply just that, you know, this sort of global pandemic hasn't really been considered in in crisis management plans. Right. So, yes. you know, you have natural disasters or you have hurricanes, earthquakes, all of those have, or, or even, you know, God forbid, you know, a, a, a terrorist attack, like we saw at 9-11. And, and so sometimes we, we fail to imagine what the worst case scenario could be. And it, and it feels like, to me, at least, that's the situation in which we're in, because we don't, a lot of companies, a lot of businesses, you know, even, you know, the economy doesn't necessarily have that playbook that have been built out, you know, in times where it's, you know, it's much easier to think rationally. So I think that's another just interesting piece of, of the coronavirus impact on, on sort of not just the US economy, but the global economy. Yeah, I think kind of, you know, arriving at the, at the end of this podcast, I wanted to share an interesting study I found about debit cards and credit cards and how dirty they actually are. Because as I was tweeting about kind of this move to cashless on Twitter and you know, all these countries urging against cash use and digital pay and, and uh, ad advising users to use or people to use digital payments, mobile payments. One Twitter user said, well, what's the big deal here? We already have credit cards and debit cards. We can just use those, right? Well, it turns out it, uh, it isn't that easy. There was a 2019 study that looked at the, the germ score of different objects, including credit cards and debit cards. And that, that germ score basically refers to yeah, the density of germs, bacteria um, on, on different surfaces. And it suggested that this germ score for food service establishments should, have, uh, should be lower than 10, just to give you an idea of kind of an optimal score. 
the results are really interesting. The results are that a debit or credit card has the highest germ score of the objects they tested with a score of 1,200. After that, there's the New York City city bike handles, so kind of the handlebars, those handles with around 700. After that, you have a, a McDonald's door handle, New York City park bench, and the New York City Penn Station bathroom actually is a little bit further down the, the list and scores one, one spot higher than the average germ score for cash, which is only 160, so around one-tenth of the germ score of a credit or debit card. And at the at kind of the bottom here is a New York City subway pole with 68. So that just gives you an idea that the next time you think you're smart when you're using your debit or credit card, even in a contact this kind of way that, you know, this this still is, you know, maybe at least according to survey, even dirtier, so to say, than gen cash bill. And it makes sense if you think about it, because in the US, obviously, cash and debit cards, uh, credit and debit cards are getting passed around a lot, right? You hand it off to your waiter, and then he or she walks with it, and maybe somebody else also touches it, kind of charging um, the card and so forth. So this could be the time where consumers are emphasizing mobile payments, you know, be it Google Pay, Apple Pay, whatever, also Venmo Pay, or just Cash App for peer-to-peer payments, or then also in, in combination uh, with Apple Pay even more. Because your mobile phone, obviously, during these times, also should be disinfected and so forth from time to time, but it definitely does not get handed around so much than, than your credit or debit card. So I don't know. I, I definitely didn't know about that. Uh, I don't know if you did, George, but I definitely found it interesting. I definitely didn't, and I'm going to go disinfect my cards and uh, wash my hands <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> yeah. One other thing that I just wanted to bring up in terms of just you know stats that I've been looking at over the past uh, week or two is OpenTable actually has a very good website where if you just Google OpenTable reservations, you can find out the like they have a listing showing the different the year over year change in in specific cities throughout the U.S. And it just shows shows you how how and when cities are really actually going on these uh, shelter-in-place scenarios. So just an interesting stat to look at, seeing the comparison between different cities, which cities are responding first and, and whatnot. So definitely keep your eyes on that. Hopefully that will reverse course in, in due time. Yes, for sure. Hope so. So thank you, everybody, for listening. We hope you stay safe and wish you the best uh, through these tough times. So you, I think you can look forward to, to another few episodes from George and my side. I think we have a lot of interesting things to talk about during these days in, in the fintech space, you know, around Cash App, potentially also maybe talking about a regulation and Square's banking license that they received approval for, conditional approving for recently. So yeah, keep an eye on that and stay safe. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.